Of all affairs, communication is the most wonderful. These are the words of John Dewey, an American philosopher, psychologist, and educational reformer. Dewey's life spanned nearly a century, a period in which some of the greatest intellectual and technological advances in human history were made. He also lived during the American Civil War, First and Second World Wars. Strap yourself in for more. I'll take you into his childhood, personal life, and academic career, but then dive deeper into his theories and thoughts on education and communication. Born on October 20th, 1859, in Burlington, Vermont, John Dewey was the third of four sons. His parents, Archibald Sprague Dewey and Lucina Artemisia, had both been raised on farms. And John was just a young boy during the Civil War, when his father had enlisted in the Calvary as a quartermaster. I didn't know what a quartermaster was until I looked it up. In the most general sense, quartermasters were responsible for handing out supplies to troops, doing inventory, and distributing needed materials. Senior Dewey must have been good at what he did because he later became a grocer as a tobacco shop owner, and the family was financially stable. His religious mother, Lucina, instructed him in theology and morality at a young age. She urged him to join the First Congregational Church of Burlington at age 11, where growing up, he was forbidden to drink, gamble, or play cards. Later in life, he'd abandon these religious practices and adopt a more liberal and humanistic perspective of religion. Pious, as his parents were, they were very encouraging when it came to his free studies. The Dewey family actively participated in educational, church, and literary groups. John was an avid reader and took advantage of their private library. He also loved nature and outdoor activities, which would likely later influence his ideas on education and experience. In his own formal education, he was delayed in getting started due to the Civil War. But in 1867, he went to the district school in Burlington at the age of eight. And in 1872, he would have been 13, went on to the local high school, enrolling in the college preparatory course. As a student, he was quiet and reserved. Even as an adult, one student of Dewey's and later philosopher, Sidney Hook, would remember him as, quote, almost pathologically shy. He was extremely reticent in talking about his feelings, yet he was so sensitive to the feelings of others, end quote. While still a young man in the fall of 1875, Dewey entered the University of Vermont at the age of 15 and began a classical course of study. Unlike what we're more familiar with today in the highly specialization of fields within the physical and social sciences, Dewey took a generalized approach. Much like earlier philosophers like Socrates and Aristotle, he read widely across the subjects of economics, politics, ethics, theology, philosophy, and current events. Then, in his senior year, he focused his attention on political and social philosophy, after being exposed to evolutionary theory, which would also later inform his ideas on psychology and free will. He graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1879 and decided on a high school teaching career after a cousin offered him a position at Oil City High School in Pennsylvania. There, he taught Latin, mathematics, and natural sciences for two years 
while still pursuing his own interests, studying and reading works on philosophy, especially metaphysics. In response to what he was learning, he wrote an essay that would open his career in another direction. The essay was titled, The Metaphysical Assumptions of Materialism, which he submitted to the editor of the Journal of Speculative Philosophy in the spring of 1882. It was accepted. The publication of this essay sparked his confidence and spurred him into a position teaching at Lakeview Seminary in Charlotte, Vermont, where he is also tutored privately in philosophical classics and German philosophy. His tutor prompted him to pursue graduate studies in philosophy at John Hopkins University, then a pioneer graduate school. Borrowing $500 from an aunt, Dewey began his studies in September 1882. At John Hopkins, he majored in philosophy and held minors in history and political science. In his philosophy studies, he was especially intrigued by German philosophers Hegel and Kant, and to the new subject of physiological psychology. What's physiological psychology? According to the Corsini Encyclopedia of Psychology, if psychology is defined as the study of behavior, then physiological psychology, also known as biological psychology, is the study of how the brain functions to control our learned and unlearned behaviors, as well as our hopes, dreams, emotions, and cognitive processes. His studies at Hopkins influenced his understanding of the objective power of scientific methodology as applied to the human sciences. He completed his doctoral work in 1884 with a thesis entitled The Psychology of Kant. Dewey continued to have a very colorful academic life. He was offered a temporary position teaching as an instructor of philosophy at the University of Michigan in 1884, and was there for a couple of years until he accepted a post at the University of Minnesota. There, he was the head of the mental and moral philosophy department. But Michigan must have missed him because he returned the following year when he was offered a permanent position as the university's philosophy chair. He'd be with the University of Michigan for nearly a decade and shift from idealism to experimentalism, also known as instrumentalism, which is all about human experience. Basically, his intellectual thinking shifted away from Hegel's idealism, where one's beliefs or ideals are pursued regardless of practicality, and became more pragmatic. He became interested in problems of practical human affairs as an organizing and integrating force in society at large. In simpler terms, how the individual affects all of society. Dewey's probably best known for his theories on education. I found it interesting to understand the impetus of this great deal of work that he's known for. Apparently, he began to really evolve his educational theories of elementary and secondary education in 1886, while he was working to investigate the quality of Michigan high schools to determine whether students be admitted to the state university without having to take entrance exams. His investigations convinced him that the traditional educational methods, like the teacher-centered and rote memory approach, didn't support the process of learning that develops naturally in young children. So, he began to go into the research of child psychology and how it relates to schools. 
and he came to the conclusion that the process of classroom education leads into an evolving democracy, essentially the importance of students growing into citizens. And his scholarly career would continue to expand in this kind of work. During his preoccupation with academia, he also found time to marry and start a family. In July 1886, Dewey married Harriet Alice Chipman of Fenton, Michigan. Harriet was a junior at the University of Michigan, a philosophy student of Dewey's, and a member of the Philosophical Society. Her own interests and social problems positively impacted Dewey. The couple had three daughters and four sons, one of whom was adopted. Two of their sons died in childhood. After many years with the University of Michigan, in 1894, Dewey went to the University of Chicago, where he founded and directed a laboratory school for elementary and secondary students. This position is what gave him the opportunity to finally try out his developing teaching methods directly. And it gave him the material for his first major work on education, The School and Society, published in 1900. In this book, he wrote about his progressive ideas, which challenged the conservative tradition of rote learning and recitation. By 1902, the book became a standard text for innovators in education, and he was appointed director of the University of Chicago's School of Education. However, there were critics of Dewey, too. They coined the term Deweyism as a shorthand insult of progressive education. According to his critics, Deweyism lowered academic standards, lacked in discipline, and had too much time devoted to non-academic subjects, such as crafts and life skills. Even a few fellow colleagues at the school in Chicago strongly opposed him. For several years, Dewey and the president of the university disagreed over personal and academic issues. But the specific cause of his eventual resignation was the administration's decision not to renew the contract of Harriet Dewey, who had by then been heading the experimental school for a year. And in 1904, after disagreements with other faculty, he left. After resigning from the University of Chicago, he moved to Columbia University, accepting posts at the Teachers College and in the Department of Philosophy. During his long tenure at Columbia, he also lectured extensively around the world. After World War I ended, he spent a sabbatical leave in the Far East, visiting Japan and China. Then he traveled to Turkey, 1924, Mexico, 1926, and the Soviet Union, 1928. Sadly, attributed to illnesses she contracted during their travels, Harriet died in 1927. Not long after, in 1930, Dewey decided to retire from teaching and pursue full-time research and writing. Nevertheless, he held an honorary title as Professor Emeritus of Philosophy in Residence and continued to advise doctoral students. Besides all of his research and writing, in 1933, he also helped found the University in Exile, an organization supporting student refugees from fascism. And in December of 1946, at the age of 87, Dewey married Roberta Lowitz Grant, a widow whom he'd known since the early 1900s. Shortly after their marriage, 
the couple adopted two Belgian war orphans, John and Adrian. Now that we've had an intro into his childhood, personal life, and an extensive timeline of his academic career, we'll look more closely at his educational theories, and then segue into his ideas on communication. In what way was John Dewey an educational reformer? Well, for starters, he was known as the father of pragmatism. His theories on education were centered around taking an active, as opposed to passive, approach to teaching and learning. Pragmatic or progressive educators believe that teaching should involve children's real lives, children's interests, motivations, environments, and that teaching should be student-centered. In this way, a teacher's main function connects, organizes, and directs activities that provide children with opportunities and conditions to develop fully and holistically. As a democratic thinker, he believed that learning and living are social matters, and that schools should be organized as communities. Thus, as individuals develop personal potential, in effect, society improves. Dewey insisted that classroom teaching and learning be practiced as a participatory democracy, actively, not passively. Students and teachers should work together to engage in a conversation, and perhaps even beyond the pinnacle of national democracy, he saw education not just as a preparation for life and society at large, but as life itself. Above all, his progressive ideas on education, still controversial, initiated a teaching methodology that continues to be employed in American classrooms today. You know schools are incorporating Dewey's ideas when you hear phrases like learning by doing, democracy in action, and creating a caring community of learners. <laughs> by example, Dewey actively participated in his own lifelong learning through embodying experience. Dewey met F. Matthias Alexander, the developer of the Alexander Technique, a method of learning how to move with ease. The two met during World War I in New York City, where Dewey was already in his late 50s. After a series of lessons with Alexander, Dewey practiced for the rest of his life. He was such a proponent of the method that he wrote the introduction to three of Alexander's books. Professor Frank Pierce Jones of Tufts University writes of an interview he'd had with Dewey towards the end of his life. Quote, the greatest benefit he got from lessons, Dewey said, was the ability to stop and think before acting. Physically, he noted an improvement first in his vision and then in breathing. Before he had lessons, his ribs had been very rigid now they had a marked elasticity, which doctors still commented on, though he was close to 88. Intellectually, he found it much easier, after he had studied the technique, to hold a philosophical position calmly once he had taken it, or to change it, if new evidence came up warranting a change. He contrasted his own attitude with the rigidity of other academic thinkers, who adopt a position early in their careers, and then use their intellects to defend it indefinitely. End quote. I appreciate this about Dewey, that he lived to be nearly a hundred and could change his mind or adjust his thinking. 
Through so much of my research, I encountered how difficult it was to pin him down to one ideology. And that's because he didn't hold his views stubbornly. He seemed to be open to new ideas, a progressive traditionalist. I heard a saying once and could never seem to find the attribution, but here it is. Any belief, even if it's the right belief, becomes a wrong belief when it's held too tightly. One modern writer and critic, Stephen Holmes, wrote an article in a 1996 issue of The New Republic and had this to say about the American philosopher. Quote, His capacity to fuse seemingly incompatible commitments was nothing short of astonishing, and it certainly helps to explain the universal failure to wedge him into a tidy box. He did not combine his contrary attitudes accidentally. These yokings together were the deepest expression of his thought. End quote. For example, in his ideas on education, ethics, and aesthetics, Dewey always promoted the individual. But by the 1940s, he recognized that liberalism required more attention on the needs of the whole. He was always evolving his thinking in philosophy, religion, politics, etc. Learning as life itself. As a teacher by degree myself, a school librarian, therefore also familiar with the infamous Melville Dewey, who created the Dewey Decimal System, not the same Deweys, though often confused, and no direct relation. Anyway, I was already familiar with John Dewey and his influence on education. Many years later, in pursuit of a degree in communication studies, I came across his influence again through something he'd said, and a quote that piqued my interest. The quote I opened with. Of all affairs, communication is the most wonderful. That is some lofty praise coming from someone who studied earnestly across so many disciplines. Why did he hold communication in such high regard? His philosopher friend and Unitarian, Max Otto, said that, quote, One of John Dewey's far-reaching ideas was the idea that talking or communication is miraculous. It seemed to him the most wonderful occurrence in the world that things should have evolved beyond externally pulling and pushing one another around. And we should have developed the ability to communicate, should have acquired the art of handling our feelings and meanings to one another. End quote. Dewey valued communication and believed healthy communities provided communication freely. He valued the process of communication as an art, as expression, and not merely as transmission of pulling or pushing, that it's relational and builds outside the practical, and yet he was the father of pragmatism. Yes, communication is artful, and art is a process of doing or making, both for the artist and the viewer, the one expressing and the one receiving. Like a painting, where the painting can be produced by a skilled artist or by a child. Communicating can be a skilled process or an adolescent process. And just like art, communication can be aesthetic and purposeful. In communication, we look at the full experience, surroundings, connections, and the uniqueness of the encounter. 
There's a relationship in the interaction of the artist art object and in the audience art object. Dewey said that art, quote, presents the world in a new experience which they, the audience, undergo, end quote. My simplified interpretation is that art doesn't mirror or simply transmit reality. Art represents the artist's experience to the audience. And just like art media, the tools or supplies used to create a visual work of art, in human communication, words alone are purely external tools, but it's the experience of those words by a subject through the aesthetic experience that they then become an expression This connected me also to something I'd heard from Virginia Woolf on the subject of words. She'd said that words don't live in dictionaries, but in the mind. When communication is only a statement, that is transmission. A statement is merely the means and ends or anticipated action, simply the goal, very intentional and oriented toward the external outcome. But when communication has an internal orientation, the sender articulating and the receiver decoding, it becomes an artful and subjective expression. Like Dewey said, it is miraculous. Dewey remained active up until his death at the age of 92. He died in New York City on June 1st, 1952 of pneumonia complicated by a broken hip he'd had suffered a month earlier. The funeral service was held at Community Church in New York City, and his body was cremated. In 1972, his ashes were buried on the grounds of the University of Vermont. Dewey was once called a Yankee saint, and on another occasion, an American Buddha. Eight years shy of a century, Dewey published over 700 articles in 140 journals and close to 40 books. He wrote on philosophies, ethics, logic, metaphysics, art, religious experience, war, politics, and economics. He faced many critics and still does today, and yet remains highly regarded. In the words of a fellow philosopher, Morris R. Cohen, he said that of Dewey, quote, If there could be such an office as that of national philosopher, no one else could be properly mentioned for it. In the spirit of beautiful gray sponge, I'll close now with these two quotes by Dewey. The most important attitude that can be formed is that of the desire to go on learning. And All human experience is ultimately social, that it involves contact and communication. So, I say, as I strive to do with this beautiful gray sponge, why not communicate and connect with others? Sift what we can learn from others, and from those beautiful others, go on learning. And that's it. The life of John Dewey. The lifelong learning of John Dewey. 
I hope you learned something too. And thank you for listening.